0: Necessary evil, a sinister phrase if ever there was one. Where do we draw the line between the greater good and the lesser grief? Is drawing that line playing fair or playing God? There is no arguing the fact that modern day miracles come in the form of science and medicine, but most light comes from darkness and modern day miracles often come from a grisly past up the close and down the stair, in the house with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox the man who buys the beef. Burke and Hare, they were a pair, killed a wife and didn't care. They put her in a box and sent her off to Dr. Knox. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox is the yin that buys the beef. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. We would be
1: dead. doing this week i'm doing i'm doing good i'm doing good (sighs) making it yeah (laughs) making it i know
0: it was a little rough to find out schools weren't going back
1: yeah yeah that was rough the kids took it pretty well on my end um we had a lot of discussion about it beforehand. So they were actually relieved that they didn't have to go back and like see all their friends and face masks and have to figure out distancing and yeah. All of that. So
0: I could see that. My kids are like kind of too little to grasp those things. So they were just mm-hmm. sad. Violet was pretty devastated. But yeah. <sighs> we're taking it all in stride and now we're back. On track, podcasting it up. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Yay. Uh, Welcome back to our fiends as well. Uh, This week's story helped me learn some really surprising things about Leslie (laughs) and gave me an even deeper appreciation for the men and women who choose to donate their bodies to science, which I know you said something that you came to as well. This week we're talking about Burke and Hare, the Resurrection Men, who were not Resurrection Men, but actually took it upon themselves to act as executioners. But before we get to the story, let's shout out some awesome people and good news, shall we? Yes. Yay! First, an enormous thank you goes out to our friend Heidi Dugan, not not from Book Club. <laughs> <laughs> It was kind enough to donate to our cause. Heidi, your generous donation has helped us secure another month of our streaming service. So thank you so very much. We love you.
1: Love you, Heidi, not from book club. Woo! Second
0: thank yous go out to um, my friend Brad. Um, and an anonymous reviewer.
1: Ooh, I still
0: don't know who that was. They appear to be a healthcare worker, so thank you for everything you're doing right now. Awesome. Thank you guys for those really kind words. They help us so much. Additional thanks go out to our friends John and Arielle for going above and beyond the Call of Duty and leaving us a second review, which could not have been nicer.
1: Fantastic.
0: We love you guys. You're the best. And I'm um, like, if John and Ariel can leave two reviews,
1: mm, you guys can at least leave one.
0: I feel like some other people could probably leave one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to some, no pressure. No. Like a little pressure.
1: It's not mandatory, <laughs> but it is necessary.
0: <laughs> you are right there. You are right. <laughs> Also, uh, a couple of you guys have reached out privately to me or Leslie and everything you said was so, so meaningful. Um, If we're able to let some folks escape the terrifying Groundhog Day we're all living in right now, then we're really, really happy to be able to to do that. So um, just happy thoughts and love goes out to those people who reached out to us and said some nice stuff. Okay, Um, I think that is all the business we have Right now.
1: Sounds good. You have anything else? Anything else to announce before we carry on? I do not.
0: All right, then. Uh, let us get on with Burke and Hair.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed that little children's song at the beginning there.
0: Yeah, Leslie found that one first. <laughs> <laughs> it's apparently um a jump rope
1: song sometimes. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds like <laughs> lighthearted and fun.
1: Yeah, well, it's like that pocket full of posies song.
0: We're. Filled with dark
1: nursery rhymes. Oh, yeah. The Victoria well, I guess they wouldn't have, they'd been before Victorian era. Yeah. But those children were creepy, the songs they came up with. They were indeed. <laughs> also, like, <laughs> you guys are just lucky that this week my life has been
0: too chaotic to have my children record that. Yeah. <laughs> I usually have my creepy kids do it for me, but they, we were not, that wasn't happening this week. So our story begins, as most of our stories do, with bodies. Yay. And this time we're going to take a brief step away from New England, <laughs> so out of character for me, and journey instead to Scotland. Scotland, Old England. <laughs> not England, Scotland. I can't do a Scottish accent, no, so you that guys was not it. Not, won't get into any of that. Specifically Edinburgh in 1828, and it is pronounced Edinburgh- And if you pronounce it Edinburgh or Edinburgh, you will probably get punched. So
1: You're wrong. You're all wrong.
0: I've done my very best. I hope I did it justice enough for like a sad American like me. Uh, Specifically, Edinburgh in 1828. In the early 19th century, Edinburgh had several pioneering anatomy teachers, including Alexander Monroe, John Bell, not to be confused with Bell Witch John Bell, or the doctor that discovered Bell's palsy, which was Charles Bell, his older brother. Everything links together. Love that. Mm. No, this was the third John Bell who pioneered modern surgery of the vascular system. Good on him. They also had a man named John Goodsir, which is a great name. <laughs> hmm good sir good sir and dr robert knox who we will get back to all of these men helped develop anatomy into a modern science and because of their efforts edinburgh became one of the leading european centers of anatomical study so they were a very big deal for up-and-coming doctors With all of these marvelous advancements and pioneering minds, medical training was becoming increasingly popular in Edinburgh. And the only way to truly teach anatomy and by extension surgery is with the use of a real human body. However, the legal supply of corpses for medical schools and private anatomical schools, which did not require a license before 1832, they sound like terrifying institutions, (laughs) (laughs) All these demands, they couldn't possibly keep up with the ever-growing demand. And that's because it wasn't exactly easy to get a body. Before the Anatomy Act of 1832, which gave doctors, anatomy teachers, and medical students access to freely donated bodies, there were very few ways a body could be legally obtained for dissection. Now, Leslie and I have had like a lot of discussions about this because the laws seem to be incredibly blurry but I'm going to tell you what I found and then I'm going to let Leslie interject with what she found. And somewhere in that is all of the truth, I think. (laughs) One of the ways that you could obtain a body was through the court system, meaning that a criminal might be sentenced to death and dissection if their crime was serious enough. And then a medical college was at liberty to use their body to teach with also up for grabs were the bodies of anyone who completed suicide as it was seen as self-murder back then and therefore a punishable crime orphans who passed away while living in an orphanage which i just i hate that one My. i know i know they're all people but like kids makes me the saddest and anyone who died while living in a government-run workhouse more commonly known as the poorhouse. <laughs> not a nice way to put it but like mm-hmm. more recognizable That last one did not actually come up in my research. Leslie brought it to my attention. And really, it makes perfect sense. The people living in um, poor houses were being taken care of by the government. So the government felt that they could do what they saw fit with their bodies after they passed. No one could pay for a funeral. So off to the medical school you go.
1: They owed a debt to society.
0: Yeah. Ugh, I hate that that's how it is, but that's how they saw it. So we're talking about a period in time where far more people were also profoundly religious. So a proper burial would be extremely important. Without it, your soul or the soul of your loved one would not make it into heaven. So really donating your body to science seemed like the worst possible outcome for most humans at that location at that time. And therefore, it was reserved for criminals and the helpless, which is... Pretty rough. During the 18th century, hundreds of people had been executed for trivial crimes, but by the 19th century, only about 56 people were being sentenced to capital punishment in Edinburgh each year. Add to that the handful of orphans, poorhouse occupants, and those who died by suicide, and it still couldn't contend with the 500 plus cadavers that were needed annually in Edinburgh due to the expansion of medical schools. So there was not a lot of supply and an enormous demand for dead bodies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is gross, but you know, whatever. <laughs> necessary evil, as I said.
1: It's necessary for sure.
0: Well, it was, and we'll get there because a lot of scientific advances would never have come if they, if it wasn't for those bodies. Yep. The situation had begun to get desperate. As I have mentioned in previous podcasts, necessity is frequently the mother of invention. And that is where we see the creation of a particularly crafty brand of criminal called resurrection men, which is just a fanciful term for grave robbers. Or if you're feeling spooky and who among us is not feeling spooky, uh, you can also call them body snatchers. Yes. the good one. <laughs> These people are exactly what they sound like. Men almost always as the job was pretty labor intensive and women were told they couldn't really do that kind of thing back then, Uh, they would dig up recently dead bodies and sell them to teaching doctors and medical schools for a tidy sum. The price per corpse changed depending on the season. A recently dead body would fetch eight pounds during the summer months when the warmer temperatures brought on quicker decomposition and 10 pounds in the winter months when demand by anatomists were greater because the colder temperatures meant they could store corpses longer and so they undertook more dissection. So you're gonna want to steal your bodies in the winter
1: for sure. <laughs> so
0: you can really max your profit. Yeah.
1: Got it. And I think that equates to like like 10 pounds I think equates now to about like 100,000. Really? Uh, no, I'm sorry, 1,000 pounds. I would say 1,000 pounds. Okay. Cuz I remember seven when I found seven, it was like seven the one number, it was it was around 7 pounds. That was about 800 now.
0: So that translates to like eight hundred dollar eight hundred pounds now, which pounds. would translate mm-hmm. to like, Jesus, like fourteen hundred dollars or something, a lot more like that.
1: Yeah. So it, it was a lot. That was a lot of money for them.
0: Yeah. So this is no small endeavor. You're you're really getting compensated for your efforts. And you guys can feel free to correct us in the pound to dollars transfer. I did not prepare that whatsoever. That was off the top of my head. I know it's more. That's about yeah. it. <laughs> At one point it was like double and now it's not quite, but I don't know. Yeah. So Body snatching, because clearly I'm feeling spooky, so I'm going to call it that, became so rampant and common that people were burying their loved ones in locked metal coffins or keeping the bodies of their loved ones in their house for an extended length of time after death, which sounds very smelly. And
1: much like Karl
0: Tanzler. Mm, except for that was way longer.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was excessive. Yeah. Some people would choose to stand guard over recently buried bodies 24 hours a day for the first two to six weeks after death. Some churches would even go so far as to purchase and rent out mort safes. The mort-safe is a large coffin-shaped contraption with a stone slab on top frequently and metal bars that extend down from it into the earth, which would be locked around the coffin until the body had decayed beyond usefulness, and then it would be removed and
1: used again elsewhere. Yeah, fuck those scientists. Yeah, right? So it was this big, (laughs) heavy
0: thing, sometimes just bars, but, like, usually it had a big, heavy top that was, like, almost pretty much impossible to get off the coffin until the body was so gross you didn't want it. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) <laughs> churches and graveyards would rent out their mort safes to families who wished to protect the bodies of their loved ones but could not stand guard 24 hours a day mort safe societies also cropped up as well where private citizens would purchase a few of them and then form a society you could pay dues to like to, dues to be in kind of like a union of eventually dead people <laughs> so weird if the deed popped up and you had paid your dues your family would have access to these mort safes so be in the club be safe if you wish to visit a mort safe to this day, up close and in person, you can see a few at Greyfriars Cemetery and a few other particularly historic churchyards and cemeteries in Scotland. So if you're in Scotland and you want to see some, you can. Awesome. Add that to our list of trips. Yes. And then the Harry Potter castle. I'm there. Let's go. Cool. <laughs> so in case I haven't made it clear Scotland was obviously a hotbed for these activities as it was home to a pre- prestigious medical schools at the time. But that's not to say that this wasn't happening in other places. It certainly was. This kind of thing was happening all over Europe and in America too. We had our share of mm-hmm. grave robbing fun. Cemeteries also began to build watch houses to which you can also see at Greyfriars Cemetery, I believe. Uh, to shield guards and volunteers from the elements while they kept watch over fresh graves. Communities would band together and create watching societies where volunteers and hired men would take shifts, watching graves around the clock. I'm telling you all of this to help you understand how big of an issue this was at the time. Like it was a very big widespread deal. But... You might be wondering why all of these precautions fell on private citizens and churches. Why wouldn't authorities patrol more vigilantly, install armed guards at cemeteries, and increase the relatively low penalty for grave robbing? Well, that's simple. It was a necessary evil. It's a horrible way to look at things, but the world needed doctors, and doctors needed training, and there was no other way to get around the need for bodies, so authorities seemed, seemed to turn a blind eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, interfering with the grave was a misdemeanor at the time and not a felony. And therefore, it was only punishable with a fine and imprisonment rather than transportation to a prison colony or execution. This made grave robbing an extremely lucrative business to run. And because the authorities viewed it as a necessary evil, the legal risk was a lot lower than one might think. So it was pretty easy to get away with and you could make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Do you have any... Any? Did I miss any facts in that? Nope. Cool. <laughs> You got it all. <laughs> I told you I have a lot of information this week.
1: Just drinking my tequila. I'm okay.
0: Yes. Uh, everything I have said so far probably makes doctors seem pretty innocent in this whole nasty affair. And to a certain extent they were. But that's not entirely true. Many doctors bought bodies from criminals at an alarming rate. And few would admit that they knew what they were involving themselves in. But they didn't nonetheless. Frankly, this is all very morally ambiguous because no one should ever take liberties with a body. I am not here to endorse grave robbing or necromancy or anything like that. Leave the dead in peace. But there is no arguing that society benefited enormously from this abhorrent practice. Thousands of doctors would train on these bodies and go on to help an innumerable amount of people. So it's really hard to take a firm stance on the doctors involved here. And I think, Leslie, you would agree with that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: True, some doctors were also benefiting from these activities financially as medical students were paying to take their classes and have the chance to dissect a cadaver. But the line is just so murky. They had to make a living too. However, I do believe that some medical professionals turned a blinder eye than others. And our story today involves what we might say is one such doctor. His name is Dr. Robert Knox, and Leslie is going to tell us all about
1: him. Take it away. All right. So... Dr. Robert Knox was a Scottish anatomist, zoologist, ethnologist, and a doctor. Zoologist? A zoologist, I yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, he was born in 1791 to a respectable family. He was the eighth child of Mary and Robert Knox, Ooh. and his father was a teacher of mathematics and natural philosophy at the Harrods Hospital in Edinburgh. Uh, Knox was notably ugly. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just kept finding it. So I was like, all right, let's talk about it. Yep. He had smallpox as an infant. So it left him with a pitting and scarring on one half of his face while also destroying his like left eye. He was like the phantom of the opera. Yeah. But it, so you can see like in all the little drawings they have of him, it's always like only one side of his face. hmm. Yeah. But that didn't stop him at all. Like, he did not suffer because he was ugly whatsoever in his life. Good for you. He was very well educated and received several medals and honors during his time at school. He graduated from the University of Edinburgh in in 1814 and immediately went into the army where he cared for wounded soldiers. After a year in London, he went um, to Belgium to attend the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. And during this time, he realized he needed to be taught more comprehensive anatomy if he was going to become successful in surgery. For the next few years, he studied anatomy in Belgium, South Africa, and France before returning to Scotland. And uh, that happened in 1822. A year later, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. I keep saying Edinburgh.
0: Edinburgh. Like, like Edinburgh. a bra.
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I watched
0: a very, very... um annoyed Scottish teenager,
1: mm-hmm. tell me how to pronounce this word. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I I always tried to get away with it by just saying it real fast. So, <laughs> Edinburgh.
0: <laughs> she was really mad. She's like, it's not like it's Welsh. It's easier to pronounce. I was like, sorry, Damn, Welsh. Damn, Welsh.
1: I know. <laughs> uh, okay, so a year later, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. 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 <laughs> Edinburgh. <laughs> John's going to be like, just keep going, please. <laughs> he helped establish a museum of anatomy at the Royal College of Surgeons, where he served as a curator. Meanwhile, in 1825, Knox signed a partnership agreement with his old teacher, John Barclay taking over most of his work. And at 1826, the Barclays Anatomy School in Surgeon's Square, Edinburgh, was left to Knox after the death of John Barclay. This was a top-notch private school, and it was getting a a lot of recognition because Knox was just brilliant with his lectures. Um, That's where a lot of the uh, classes for anatomy took place, was in this uh, Surgeon's Square area. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the chair... Of the anatomy at the University of Edinburgh was a man named um, Alexander Munro Turchis. He was a tenured professor and the third of the Monroes to hold a seat at the university.
0: Right. His dad was the one I mentioned and then there was him then too. His grandfather. Yeah.
1: Yep. So his grandfather being the first secured his seat for his family line to always be able to teach anatomy there. But after three generations, these lectures were starting to get really dull. <laughs> <laughs> Boring. Boring. Bites it up. Also, yeah, <laughs> even Charles Darwin couldn't bear Monroe or his class. <laughs> he, like, wrote to his parents, like, the year earlier. It was just, like, he is just horrible. He's gross. Like Charles Darwin? Yeah. Yep. hmm <laughs> I like that fact. Do
0: you know that every new species he discovered he ate? Makes sense to me. He did. He ate a lot. He ate, like, <laughs> all of them. He was like, is this a new... Owl I've never heard of, I'm going to eat it. Awesome. That's a true Charles Darwin <laughs> fact. I love it.
1: Keep going. <laughs> okay. So Monroe was still the big man on campus, whether people liked him or not, found him gross, whatever. Um, they, I even read a fact where he would come to class, like after using the cadavers and stuff, he would come in just still bloodied shirt, like from one class to the next. That was common. Like he just wouldn't change. Nobody cared.
0: Pre-lister surgeons were gross.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. So, everything went through Monroe first.. Uh, okay. Monroe was losing a lot of students, though. um because a lot of them were just paying to take Knox's class. So even though that they were enrolled in this university and could just take Monroe's course, they would pay to like go to see Knox. He was a showman, right? He was very... And there was a lot of others. So it wasn't just him. There were other... um, That's where you mentioned a lot of these other private universities were popping up. Mm -hmm. So people would pay for them. It's kind of the same thing that happens today. Like with private schools, sometimes you're paying for a better education. Yep, And that's what was happening. Yeah. So Knox was making quite a name for himself within the community and the board and chairs didn't mind him teaching because he made them a lot of money and he was really good at it. He also was giving a really good name to anatomy in the field and like really boosting um, that area up for science. Knox, who wanted to be noticed by these men, knew he had to keep up his lectures as well as keep publishing research papers in order to ever be considered for a chair in the department. What I think was happening, I think he really wanted Monroe's seat in the long run. Okay. It wasn't long before his classes filled up with eager students. He was starting to teach three times a day. He was funny, brilliant, and challenging. He could just stand in front of a class and teach for hours without any notes or props. And when he had a cadaver to dissect, the classes were even better. However, after a while, it was getting to a point where he knew he needed to acquire more bodies for dissection in the classroom. All the teachers felt this way. And one of the problems was that when a cadaver would be sent to the schools, Monroe was the first to receive them. And as Holly stated before, there were only two ways, well, about two ways to get cadavers legally. The first was from the death of a convicted criminal, and the second was from a poor like someone from the porthouse legal bodies were pretty scarce regardless of whether Monroe got them or not and even though every Scottish and British show that I ever watched makes it seem like everybody was just poor and there were dead bodies everywhere I know <laughs> apparently it's still just scarce JK that's not how it was <laughs> that was not no This led to the practice of grave robbing, and this wasn't just low-life criminals going out and snatching bodies. Anatomy professors and their students were also doing this. It was just easier and less messy to have someone else do it for you. Now, there's no proof that Knox robbed any graves, but if by chance a body were to arrive in his room, he, like other teachers, would accept them, pay for them, and not ask how or why. That brings us back to our story today. Where, on one evening, Dr. Knox received a knock on his classroom door. And when he opened it, he was greeted by three men named John, William, and Donald.
0: Oh, <laughs> Donald. And we're going to get back to that moment, but I have to take you really, back in time and talk about Burke and Hare. Um, yes, one other thing that I um found out about Dr. Knox, and i I will share the picture on our social media is that he, advertised his classes in like newspapers oh yes. and stuff mm-hmm. and he advertised that he would have two cadavers a day for dissection. That was like his yes. claim to fame. He was like,
1: come to my classes. I have two a day. You're definitely going to get to dissect something. So yeah, he started as he was getting more popular. There were um, more bodies arriving um, and that he was teaching up to three classes a day. So mm-hmm. His demand was- you could reuse the bodies, too, depending on the yeah. You know, class. they use
0: them for, like, I think up to eight different... Yeah. I think for some reason eight is in my head. But um, there are some very gruesome, and I maybe I'll post some for you guys depending on how you're feeling, um, pictures of, like, historical cadaver dissection, and the body is desiccated. Yeah. It has clearly been there for quite a long time, and it's a lot of, like, smiling surgical costumed young men. Yeah,
1: cuz they didn't have like refrigeration units then.
0: No, they look like mummies. Like when you see yeah. the bodies, they they're like horrifying looking. They don't look like the paintings you see which looks like somebody who just died on in like the operating theater.
1: Yeah.
0: They they look like they look like they've been around for a long time. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to our titular characters, William Burke and William Hare. And yes, they had the same first name but at least it's one I can pronounce. (laughs) So William Burke was born in 1792 in Ernie County, Tyrone, Ireland. William and his brother Constantine were both raised comfortably middle class and they both joined the British army as teenagers. William played the
1: fife. So there's that.
0: Not a lot of fighting going on (laughs) for him, but marching certainly wouldn't have been boring. So he had that going for him. Cool. From here on out, we're just going to refer to him as Burke to avoid confusion. So Burke married a woman in County Mayo and had two children, but had a fight with his father-in-law over like a land dispute and just deserted his entire family shortly after that. So.
1: Yeah, it happens. He's a real
0: stand-up guy. He was like, I want that land. And his father-in-law was like, nope. And then he said, I, fuck it all, bye. And he left everybody.
1: Yep. So, and that's on God.
0: <laughs> cool. <laughs> this brings us to 1817. When Burke moves to Scotland to work as a navigator on the construction of the Union Canal. During this time, he met a woman named Helen McDougall and the two set up house together. They were never formally married, but referred to one another as husband and wife. Some documents will tell you they were married, but there is no like court marriage certificate. So, I mean, you see this in a lot of old cases, but that's what we have to go on. Mm -hmm. So there you have that. After Burke's work on the canal was finished, he and Helen moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh in 1827, where Burke trained and found work as a cobbler, which is a maker of shoes.
1: So many cobblers.
0: Love a cobbler. A maker and fixer of shoes, I should say. Mm. Uh, Burke and Helen also uh, worked as hawkers, which means they sold secondhand clothing. And basically they just did what they could to get by. You know that scene in the end of A Christmas Carol where... Scrooge's servants are, like, rifling through his bedclothes and his, like, dressing gowns to sell. Yep. It was, like, that kind of person. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, just to give you, like, a, a mental picture. I got it. Burke was said to be a charming and well-liked fellow. He went to church locally. He had friends. Um, and he was, like, an easy talker. He was, you could, he, he could, like, suck you in easily. Okay. William Hare was born in County Londonderry, Ireland and frequently lied about his age. So we don't have a concrete date of birth for, birth for him. When he was caught, he said he was 21. There are reports that he was older, there are reports that he was younger. We don't know. So, he was there. Hare was a distinctly rougher character. Not a lot is known about his upbringing, but he was a hard-drinking laborer with a penchant for fighting. Hare worked for 7 years on the Union Canal and then moved to Tanners Close to work as a coalman's assistant. At the time, Hare was living at a boarding house owned by a man named Logue and his wife, Margaret Laird. In 1826, Logue passed away and Hare quickly formed a relationship with Margaret, who was apparently just as rough as he was. She was known to be a hard-drinking, belligerent woman, so nice. they, were, they were a delight. The two were soon married and Hare took on ownership and operation of the boarding house with Margaret. In 1827, Burke and Hare both went to Pennycook, which is a rural town in Midlothian or Midlothian, I have gotten both pronunciations of this word, Scotland, to work on the harvest, which was something that you would do just to bring in some extra money. The two men met each other there and became fast friends, and when the harvest ended, Burke and his common-law wife, Helen, moved into the boarding house with Hare and Margaret. The quartet were known to drink and carry on and party and it, they had a good time. Great, great friends. So, yeah, it sounds fun. They had sleepovers every night. Awesome. They had cocktails and sang and danced and partied. Life is not too bad. Yeah. Which brings us up to the main event or events as there were quite a few. On November 29th, 1827, a lodger in Hare's boarding house named Donald, also known as Old Donald, which is rude but seemingly accurate, died suddenly of dropsy. Which is an extremely ambiguous way to die. Dropsy is just another term for edema or fluid retention, which as far as I can tell, gets mortally dangerous when it affects your heart or kidneys. Mm -hmm. You can confirm I don't. Yeah. I took my rabbit hole time on Mort Safes this week, so (laughs) (laughs) if anyone wants to further educate us on death by dropsy, please feel free to do so in the Facebook group. (laughs) Anyway, old Donald had the audacity to croak at this point in time when he still owed Hare four pounds in rent. Worst. Yeah, he relied on his army pension to pay rent, and he died right before it came in. So,
1: we well, he really got out of that.
0: I know. Saved some money there. Saved by the death. Hare brought this problem up to Burke shortly after Donald was discovered dead because he was super annoyed. So he just went to Burke and was like, ugh, this stupid guy died and he owes me money. I hate it. And Burke, being the brains in this operation, suggested they sell old Donald's old body to local anatomists. Old Donald had no family and no money for a burial after all, and he did owe them money. Well, he owed Hare money, but he also didn't exactly die in a manner where donation would be legal, so a certain amount of shenanigans were necessary. After a local carpenter donated a coffin and the local church offered to bury Donald in one of their cemetery's plots, Burke and Hare weighted the coffin down with tree bark they obtained from a local tanner, which is somebody who makes leather goods, and hid Donald's body under his bed. After old fake Donald's fake funeral, Burke and Hare took real Donald over to Edinburgh Medical College where they went in search for a buyer of their newly acquired, rapidly developing and unpleasant odor, treasure. Originally, as you mentioned, they were sent to Professor Monroe because he got first pick of everything. However, he was not in his office at the time. Yep. Sad for him. So a student... I have a student. Did you have a secretary? I have a student.
1: I had a secretary. Yeah.
0: Probably. Maybe. Maybe that person was both. Yeah. Maybe
1: it was the work study program.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. Mm-hmm. Work work study student secretary uh, sent them over to Doctor Knox in Surgeon's Square. So they that takes us to the beginning of Leslie's story, and Leslie found like this great ante- anecdote where one of them introduced themselves as John. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, cause they, cause they felt like they did something illegal, which I love this the story. Did, so. I know that they did, but it's like they went out of their way when he had no family. Nobody really knew this guy. They could have just taken his body there and nobody would have cared. Yep. Like they could, they didn't have to go through all of that. They no. wouldn't have gotten in trouble. It would have been fine, unfortunately. Yeah. But they went through quite an ordeal, <laughs> had a fake, a fake funeral. Which they stayed for. Yeah. You know. (laughs) Oh, bye, old Donald. Gotta go. (laughs) Gotta go. (laughs) But yeah. um, And so when they got to Knox's office and he was just like, who uh, and who are you? And (laughs) the one was like, (laughs) Uh, my name is John. Instead of saying William. And then the other one was probably like, think of a name. Think of a name. William. Damn it.
0: (laughs) And this is old Donlington. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were very clever. <laughs> so Doctor Knox arrived at the fixed price. Um, this says fixed, but it was not fixed because he gave them different prices for different bodies. But whatever, that's a typo on my part. He arrived, arrived at the price of seven pounds ten shillings for good old Donald. Hare received four pounds five shillings, while Burke took the balance of three pounds. Five shillings. Hare's larger share was to cover his loss from Donald's unpaid rent. Mm
1: -hmm. Fair is fair. I thought it was funny that they were like amazed at how much they got for it, but it was a lot less than what like a Scottish person bringing it would have brought. Oh, really? Would have gotten. I didn't know that. That was noted in a few things, yeah. They get more later. They do, yeah. But he was pretty fresh.
0: That's (laughs) funny. They were like, you're Irish. Yeah. Yeah. night nice. john <laughs> whatever your name is i don't care so according to burke's official confession which we refer back to a few times as he and hare left the university one of knox's assistants told them that the anatomists quote would be glad to see them again when they had another to dispose of end quote mm-hmm. and this gave them an idea They would just wait for more tenants to die and then sell them too. It would be, yeah, super lucrative. Yeah, it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Except Mm -hmm. for it doesn't. This sounded awesome, so they went home and celebrated their brilliance with whiskey and shouting or whatever was fun back then. (laughs) Their plan seemed foolproof and they were super stoked, but there was just one little problem. People were not dying. (laughs) They forgot that that only happened that one time. Right. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) The pair waited around until January for more random deaths. And when they didn't come, they figured perhaps it was time to speed this process up a little bit. And speed it up, they did. While no one was dying, the Hares did have a sick lodger. And he was a miller named Joseph. He had taken to his bed with a fever and Hare and his wife Margaret claimed that they were afraid of having a contagious lodger as it might be bad for the rest of the occupants of the house. Mm-hmm. So Hare brought this problem to Burke, who made the very logical decision that it would be best for everyone if they would just kill Joseph and sell his body. Yeah. It's like much better. Right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Save the masses.
0: Exactly. They
1: were they were doing this
0: for the good of the greater good of the house. So Burke Lord Josephine, with a generous amount of whiskey. They're like, hey, sickle Joe, come drink some whiskey with us. And as soon as he got to the point of drunk where he was like incapacitated, Burke would suffocate him with a pillow while hair laid across his chest to keep him still. Now, this was their method of execution like every single time. And it was pretty ingenious as their was no way for the victim to struggle or make detectable noise because they would wrestle them to, they would be super drunk, like blackout drunk. They would wrestle them to the floor. Hare, who was bigger, would lay on top of their chest, which means they couldn't move at all or make sound. And then Burke would put a pillow over their face and smother them. Mm -hmm. So the death was almost completely silent. Gross.
1: So much struggle.
0: (laughs) I know. Maybe they should have just like bought a gun. I don't know. They were like, we
1: could do it this way. Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> the whole affair was said to be silent. The body then went to Dr. Knox and the gentlemen would collect their fee. But now it all seemed too easy. Bodies were extremely easy to come by when you killed the people yourself. And what kind of fool would waste time and effort digging up potentially locked graves when all you really needed was whiskey and a pillow? Delightful. Brick and Hare had begun their new business venture and there was no stopping them now. So Burke and Hare are considered to have killed uh, 16 people possibly as many as 30, all of whom they sold to Dr. Knox. But the timeline as to who they killed and when they killed them can be pretty unclear. So I have pieced together as much information based on their confessions as accurately as I possibly can. Uh, So if the timeline is wonky in your mind because you've read the story somewhere else. Forgive me as a lot of times they are juggled around like mosaic tile pieces. Beautiful. Indeed. In February of 1828, a woman named Abigail Simpson came to the hair boarding house to sell salt. So she was like, hey, want to buy some salt? And they said, hey, want to drink a shit ton of whiskey? And she did, obviously. And once she got super drunk, they invited her to stay the evening because they said, well, you cannot travel home at this point, that would be unsafe. And then, of course, they suffocated her in the same manner as Joseph. I'm not sure what their excuse for murdering her was, as I do not see any indication that she was sick in any way, but Dr. Knox gave her gave them 10 pounds for her body, as he was quite pleased with its freshness.
1: The fresher, the better. Well, this is where I have
0: the fact that we had an extremely deserving conversation about cadavers. <laughs> Guys, Leslie has worked with cadavers before. Yeah. And I... Yes, I have. ...had no... Idea, which blew my mind. So why don't you tell our friends a little bit about this experience?
1: <laughs> why is it so, better when they're fresh? <laughs> <laughs> so when they're fresher, they're they're more <laughs> pliable. But <Bleh. laughs> could still move them around. They haven't um, gotten too stiff. But when you dissect them, and so for us, I was an athletic training student, so we were really learning for muscles and ligaments and the movement of the body and all that stuff. So we did have uh, one of the cadavers was a female cadaver. She was newer than some of the other ones. So we got to use her as we can pull on the ligaments. And I remember doing this in the hand, like (gasps) in the arm. You can pull on the ligaments and see how the fingers move. So you can tell like which ligament it was. And I will say when they are fresher or newer cadavers they're actually less creepy than the older ones because they still have a skin like a a better pigment to their skin the older ones start to get kind of gray so that was that was hard but yeah i mean they they were just easier to deal with but it was always hard we used to cover like the head and the and the feet as much as we, because sometimes we'd have to work on the feet, but Ugh, I just couldn't feet. deal with the hair. Yeah. I couldn't handle like the hair. I could see that. That's like a very human, like living human thing. Yeah. So that was, that was hard. We would cover that and then obviously cover their like bits because we were just doing it as, um, athletic training students. So it was much more for just like kinesiology work, not so much for medical, mm-hmm. uh, like a medical student. So we didn't need to see the whole body, but yeah, we got to work on a lot of them and Whew. yeah. You saw a lot of dead people <laughs> and a lot of dead people bits. I feel like that was a very smelly time. It was, yeah. It was—we had to do it at super early in the morning. You always had to eat before so that you didn't get nauseous and faint. Like, there was one time I was late for for breakfast, so I just, like, ran down to the cadaver lab, and I definitely—it was, like, within 10 minutes, I was just, like, on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's yeah, cuz it smells so it's such a rough smell and to this day I can still smell it. so anytime there's a scent of I guess it's probably like the formaldehyde or it, there's just the smell that like I can sense that in other things and it it just, I can't handle it.
0: Anybody who's been around that yeah, says the same thing. They say, like, death smells mm-hmm. um, differently to everyone. It has, like, a sweet or, like, an acrid smell to some people. It has, like, a very specific... Yeah. It's it's different to everybody, but nobody forgets it.
1: Yeah. I mean, and these, these bodies were... They were all pumped with the same stuff. So they... I mean, I'm sure it was kind of a similar scent for everybody. It was just... A smell that I smell other places once in a while, and it brings me right back to that classroom. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and we got to be in the classroom one time when one of, the, um, one of the students, he was, I think, going to medical school to be a surgeon. So one of his things was to do the dissection of the bodies for the classes. So depending on what body part we were discussing that week, he'd go in and do the dissection for. Oh, my God. As long as you didn't have to see guts. I cannot... No, that, that was all done before we got them. Like, they, that would have been done at, like, the morgue. And, like, they were prepared and then brought to us. And then we had a freezer. So, like, there was, like, a, a refrigerator that everything <sighs> was in. Yeah. And that was actually really creepy to walk into. I bet. Mm-hmm. As s- spooky as I
0: am, I can't handle, like, the squishy parts of Dead th- It grosses me. Out. I mean, I better than i was like my cat brings me a lot of animals and oh, that, yeah. that doesn't really phase me anymore but i can't handle like the digestive system so as long as you didn't have to see
1: yeah. any of that you were spared a little i think there's a time and place for it too like that was that was fully a classroom setting yeah Oof. and you had a lot of people around you for support it wasn't like i was down there by myself just poking at bodies
0: <laughs> ew <laughs> You guys, I also have to tell you that when Leslie told me about this the first time, she was super nonchalant. She was like, yeah, yeah. I was like down there poking in cadavers. It was fine. Yeah. What?
1: This is the <laughs> it same was, Leslie That, that was, was my like, favorite class.
0: <laughs> Get out of here. The guy in the wall, though, too scary no. forever. Cadavers? So casual. Yeah. <laughs> casual cadavers.
1: Well, they were so nice. We had, they all had names. We knew how they lived and mm-hmm. died and... Then we gave them funerals at the end of the year with their families. Like it was like a memorial.
0: That is so respectful and nice. As like a thank you. I really like that. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to get back to the story, but that was a diversion (laughs) I needed to happen. So after Abigail Simpson, who was the salt seller that they killed and sold, came an unnamed Englishman. His name isn't anywhere. He's just a rando. He was a traveling seller of matches and Tinder who fell ill with jaundice, which is liver trouble, makes your skin yellow and your eyes yellow, the white of your eyes. At Hare's lodging house. So as with Joseph, Hare was concerned with the effect his illness might have on his business. Like, doesn't want to get everybody sick, so we should just kill him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they killed him in a logical public service. The human mind's ability to rationalize is astounding, Mm -hmm. I just have to say. (laughs) After the traveling salespeople stopped coming to the Hare residence, and I wonder why, they had to get a little more creative. Hare's wife, Margaret, invited a local um, old widow to their home for a visit. Like an old lonely widow lived locally. And she was like, come over, let's hang out. Uh, Which, of course, included drinking a lot of whiskey and then murder. There goes her. (sighs) Elderly lodgers, I know. Elderly lodgers seem to be their like logical next step. Like, oh, they're old, so let's get rid of them too. Mm -hmm. But there weren't a whole lot of them. So Hare had to turn to um, other women they thought wouldn't be missed. Prostitutes. Now, this is a frequent and horrible misconception. Sex workers are people. If you mistreat them, the subhuman part of that equation is you, not them. Yeah. Anyway, I just had to put that out into the world on our behalf because that's a shitty thing. Mm -hmm. And it comes up time and time again. So Burke met two women in early April of 1828. Their names were Mary Patterson, sometimes she's known as Mary Mitchell, and Janet Brown. She met them in the he met them, sorry, in the Canongate area of Edinburgh. These two women are reported in most sources to be prostitutes, but again, please spare me the haranguing as I don't know them personally, and I'm just sharing the information that is out there in the world. Burke brought these two women, bought these two women alcohol before inviting them to breakfast. That's nice. They had drinks before breakfast. They're Irish. Ah, <laughs> oh, whatever. <It's> not weird. <laughs> Yikes. The three of them left the tavern with two bottles of whiskey and went to get breakfast. Some reports say they went to Hare's house and some say they went to Burke's brother Constantine's house. Either way, at some point in the meal, which was just more whiskey, it wasn't like eggs or anything, (laughs) Burke's wife came in and was not pleased at all. Burke and Helen had an enormous fight and Janet Brown, the less inebriated of the two, left. Mary Patterson, however, um, was passed out at the table. After the lively argument ended, Helen went to find Hare and Margaret. They agreed they would all kill Mary Patterson and sell her body to Knox, but Helen would get to keep her skirt and petticoats because she got really upset by the situation and they were really nice. Yeah. So fair is fair. I think so. Yeah, there you go. Mary Patterson's body was then stuffed into a tea chest and delivered to Dr. Knox. Still warm. So that's Mm. a good one. Yeah. (laughs) But Knox paid them eight pounds, which I don't understand. Maybe because she was a prostitute. Terrible, but maybe true. However, a few of his students insisted that they recognized Mary Patterson. Of course. Because sex workers are not, in fact, <laughs> invisible. And the chance of someone having seen Mary Patterson around was stupidly high. <laughs> like they're like, oh, yeah. this girl
1: we met in a bar
0: that everybody knows. We'll just kill her. It'll be fine.
1: I know. And they were all college students, so you know they knew her. I yeah. <laughs> huh. You sure did. <laughs>
0: So Knox told his students that the woman on the table had drunk herself to death, which I guess seemed plausible, and they all just accepted it and moved on. They're like, oh, yeah, she got too drunk. Anyway, kept going. Well, she kind of did. Kind of, that's true. Yeah. In the worst way. Later, her friend Janet Brown came back to look for her, but Birkenhair claimed that um, uh, Mary Patterson had left with a traveling salesman. Now, I think if my friend mysteriously disappeared, I would have to dig a little deeper, but apparently this was... A very reasonable explanation for Janet. And she was like, ah, traveling salesman, cool, bye. Never asked about her again.
1: She must have been a flighty, a flighty person. Yeah. Or
0: traveling salesman made a lot of money and she was like, oh, cool. She got like a really good client. Yeah. Either way, she was totally on board. So their next woman, their next victim, sorry, was a beggar woman who was an acquaintance of Burke's. In all accounts, she is just called Effie. Burke knew Effie from the days when he and his wife would sell secondhand clothing. As uh, Effie did the same thing, she sold like scraps of clothes and pieces of leather and stuff. So one day he saw the police trying to take her away for vagrancy and Burke claimed that he knew her and she lived in the same boarding house as he did, effectively saving her from prison. So the cops were taking her away and he was like, no, 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 she's my friend. I'm going to take her home. Didn't really get too saved though. (laughs) Burke took her back to Harris, got her nice and drunk, and smothered her. Knox paid them eight pounds for her body. Another victim who was taken around the same time was only known as Mrs. Haldane. She was a previous lodger who was down on her luck, so Hare let her spend the night in his stables. And you can fill in the rest of the evening from there. Got it. A few months later, Mrs. Haldane's granddaughter arrived at Harris's house looking for her grandmother, and then Burke got her drunk and killed her himself, delivering her to Knox in the tea chest and keeping the entire eight pounds for himself. row Not good. Greedy greedy.
1: Nope, not good at all. This is what he goes downhill.
0: Mm-hmm. After Mrs. Haldane, Burke and Hare happened to accept an old woman and her young, dumb grandson as lodgers. Now, In this case, the word dumb is not used to indicate any intellectual inadequacy. It means the boy was mute or could not speak. So Burke and Hare brought the old woman into a bedroom and overdosed her on painkillers, which at this time would have just been opiates. Mm -hmm. So they ushered her into the bedroom she had rented and then took the boy, her grandson, out into the kitchen and kept him occupied while they were doing this. After the old woman was dispatched, they brought the boy into the bedroom and suffocated him. There are some sensational reports that claim that Hare took the boy over his knee and broke his back to kill him. But this is false.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't see that. That would be no good for... That would make the body less money. True.
0: It would be less useful if he was, like, damaged. Mm-hmm. Also, I guess their killing method was pretty perfect because it completely preserved the bodies. I think that was one reason why they did it that way. It's smart. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, um... Burke's confessions state that he he smothered the boy in the usual fashion, but he wasn't sedated because they didn't fill a 10-year-old boy with whiskey Mm -hmm. because that would be immoral, but killing him is fine. Um, (laughs) But this is the murder that haunted Burke. He said that he could not shake the boy's expression as he was murdered because remember, he couldn't make any sound. Mm -hmm. So as they were attacking and coming after him, it would have been all facial expression and no noise. After that day, Burke would keep whiskey, and opiates by his bedside, as sleep would never come naturally. The boy and his grandmother were sold to Knox for eight pounds apiece. On June 24th, Burke and his wife left on a trip to Falkirk to visit his wife's father. When the pair departed, the hares were light on lodgers and struggling to make money. They had gone so far as to sell some of their clothing in order to pay bills. But when Burke and his wife returned, the hares were wearing brand new clothes and had money to spare. Furious, Burke accused Hare of carrying out their scheme on his own, which Burke was guilty of himself, so he really shouldn't have gone nuts. He probably should have let this one slide, in my opinion, but he didn't. Hare denied the accusations, but Burke went straight to Dr. Knox, who confirmed that Hare and his wife had indeed sold him a body the previous week for eight pounds. The men argued, and it came to blows. Burke and Helen moved out of the boarding house, and the four of them did not speak for a few months. But gradually, the pair mended their friendship, and in early October, Burke had come to visit with Hare. Just when they got to talking, the washerwoman arrived. Ugh. Oh, no. Interruption. Go home. What a bummer. <laughs> and for old times' sake, they decided to get a real drunken killer. Well, best buds. <laughs> Just for old times. Yeah. You know. Obviously, they then sold her body to an eager Dr. Knox. A week or two later, a relative of Burke's wife, Helen, named Anne McDougal, was visiting from Falkirk. She stayed on in the boarding house for a few days before the men decided to get her drunk one evening and kill her, delivering her afterward to Dr. Knox and receiving 10 pounds for her body. So I don't know why she's worth more, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe because it's October and it's colder. Yeah. There you go. Burke later claimed um, that about this, time margaret Hare suggested that they kill burke's wife helen on the grounds that they could not trust her as she was a scottish woman but burke was like "Mm, no we're not gonna kill my wife sorry (laughs) that's too far his wife was also probably not exactly thrilled that her husband and his pal decided to off her cousin for cash which is pretty understandable to be honest it is at this point where our protagonists begin to get overconfident and sloppy. And frankly, I'm shocked that it took them this long. Mm-hmm. A few weeks after the family murder, Burke and Hare encountered a man named James Wilson. This is the saddest one. Well, the little boy is pretty sad too. On the street and lured him back to the boarding house. James was an 18-year-old mentally challenged man with a profound limp caused by his deformed feet. He would dance and entertain children on street corners for money and was known locally as Daft Jamie, which I know is horrendously mean nowadays. But it was used affectionately back then and it was a very different time. Everything I read was like people loved him. So I don't know. Staff Jamie was popular with the locals as he was kind and sympathetic. Burke and Hare lured him in with promises of whiskey, but Jamie didn't really care for being drunk. So when he declined to drink to excess, the pair jumped on him. But Jamie was stronger than he looked and fought back. Eventually, Burke and Hare were able to pin him down and suffocate him. Then they delivered the body to Dr. Knox, who put it into storage to be dissected later. So I guess, yeah, because it was colder, they could do that. Students who saw Jamie's body insisted that they knew him. But Dr. Knox claimed that they couldn't have known him. No, 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 no. That's just some guy. Word began to get around that Daph Jamie had gone missing. And when the students began questioning Dr. Knox further, he bumped Daph Jamie up in front of other bodies for immediate dissection, but not before removing his easily identifiable feet and head. So he brought him into the dissection room. No feet, no head. Smart. Mm -hmm. But like, again, while Dr. Knox made valuable contributions to science and medicine alike... It is hard to deny that he, he, like, knew something shitty was going on.
1: Oh, yeah. At, I mean, at this point, he's getting that many fresh bodies. Some were warm. And he feels like he has to cut off a head. He and-
0: like cut off his head and feet real quick.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so
0: one would think after that close call, Dr. Knox and the gang would have decided to, like, knock it off with the murdering people for a little bit. After all, there were locals looking for Daft Jamie and Dr. Knox had been under suspicion, but nope, there were no consequences. And so I believe this only added to their feeling of invincibility. They're like, oh, if they didn't catch us for this one, they'll never catch us for anything. Mm -hmm. But all that would come to an end after the pair's very last murder, which happened to be on October 31st, 1828. And if you're going to get caught for a murder, I think the Halloween murder is probably the best one to be caught on. Yeah, Marjorie Docherty. Had the misfortune of meeting William Burke, who told her his last name was also Dougherty. <gasps> what a coincidence! Lies.
1: Great.
0: Burke persuaded Marjorie to come back to the boarding house he was now staying at, like he wasn't staying at Hare's house because remember they had a fight and he stayed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They were friendly again, but he wasn't staying back at his house, so he brought him back, brought her back to his boarding house. And um, there was another couple named Anne and James Gray. Staying in the room that Burke wanted to give to Margaret. And so, Burke paid the couple, Anne and James Gray, to spend the night over at Hare's boarding house. He claimed that Marjorie is a long-lost family member. I really want her to spend the night so we can really catch up and get to know each other again. Here's some money. Go over to my friends. You can stay the night there. And begrudgingly, the Grays agreed. Once they were left alone, Burke slipped out to get some more whiskey, leaving Margaret to chat with Helen, his wife, who was, like, almost definitely in on this whole thing, but... We'll get to her consequences later. Burke got whiskey all right, but he also got William and Margaret hair. They all proceeded to get quite drunk. The Greys returned briefly around 9 p.m. to collect clothing for their children and witnessed the five of them singing and dancing and drinking, and that was the last time anyone would see Marjorie alive. The next morning, the Greys returned to retrieve something from their room, but Burke hovered around Anne as she was looking for her stockings by the end of the bed, not letting her go anywhere near that area. Later that evening, when Burke and Hare had gone out, the suspicious Greys returned to their room yet again, and this time found the body of Mar- Marjorie Docherty covered in straw at the end of their bed. They just covered her with straw and left her there. That's brazen. Yeah. A lot of reports will say that the Greys went back to their room and went to bed that night and smelled something funny, and then found a body under their bed. That is not what happened. Good story though. Not what happened. The horrified Grays ran to report the crime to the police and in this small period of time Burke and Hare returned home collected the body of Marjorie and took it off to Dr Knox to sell her and this is where the shit hitteth the fan the Grays report them to the police and the next morning the police come to search the house where the body had been and clearly they clearly they did not immediately turn up Marjorie's body but they did turn up Marjorie's bloodstained clothing hidden under the bed Burke and his wife gave different times for Dougherty's departure from the house, which raised enough suspicion for the police to take them in for questioning. Early the next morning, the police went to Knox's dissecting room where they found Doherty's body. James Gray identified her as the woman he had seen with Burke and Hare. Hare and his wife were arrested that day and all four were held under the suspicion of the murder of Mary Patterson, James Wilson, and Marjorie Dougherty. Dr. Knox was questioned by authorities and he claimed to have been told and believed that Burke and Hare had been watching poor lodging houses and purchasing dead bodies for resale before anyone had the chance to claim them. Later in his confession, which I will get to shortly, Burke also stated that Dr. Knox was never aware of where the bodies they were selling came to him from. Ultimately, while the police openly stated that they found Knox to be quite reprehensible, they believed that he had not knowingly broken the law and therefore did not receive any punishment.
1: Smooth criminal. (laughs) However, it didn't
0: really go well for him, though, afterwards.
1: No, well, no, it didn't. It, It definitely, he did not get to excel to the degree that he wanted to in life, but... Locals kind of shunned him. Yeah. It wasn't as bad, though, as a lot of people think. Like, a lot of people think he died broke and poor with no family or anything like that, and that's not true. He died with a job, and he got—he just was kind of moving around from job to job, and in certain areas, people would hire him, but he—no one in Edinburgh— would touch him again so he'd have to like leave and right go elsewhere so he can conti- he continued to write papers and do a lot of things that still helped society but right. he just wasn't um he wasn't as highly appreciated Well
0: anymore. the public really <laughs> believed him to be like complicit in these crimes they really thought he knew what was going on.
1: Yeah. And he definitely he definitely did.
0: He knew more than he let on for sure. Yeah. But again it's a very murky line because while he did some really horrible things. He also did some really amazing things. So, mm-hmm. huh. the police had both the Harris as well as Burke and his wife, Helen, in custody. And so they began to do some digging. Local townspeople showed the police Burke's nephew wearing pants that had belonged to James Williams, daft Jamie. Mary's Patter- Mary Patterson's clothing was in Helen's possession. And therefore the police were able to charge, charge, sorry, the quartet with these three murders. And now would be a good time to mention they were all also locked up separately and none of their initial stories matched. So they were all clearly some form of guilty. When pressed, Burke and Hare would go on to blame one another. But it was Hare in the end who offered up evidence against Burke in exchange for immunity. This happened simply because Hare was interviewed first by Sir William Ray, the Lord Advocate, which is a great title.
1: Yes, our Lord and Savior.
0: Lord Advocate, Sir William Ray. (laughs) Hare and his wife also agreed to testify against Burke, which they did. The trial was something of a... Circus of finger pointing with Hare's wife bringing their infant daughter who had whooping cough on the stand with her. So the baby would have these loud coughing fits conveniently, and it would like, give her time to think about what she was going to say. Mm, nice. Clever, clever. However, the nail in the proverbial iron coffin came when Dr. Knox's assistant testified that Burke and Hare had in fact sold Dr. Knox the bodies in question. Okay. In the end, Hare and his wife were released as promised. So Hare got away scot-free. They let him go. Mm-hmm. And his wife, as was Burke's wife. Now, to be clear, I do not think the wives were innocent in any way. But I also don't think they actually carried out any of the acts. So it's a really tough judgment call as to what their punishment would or should have been. Right. They were there. They were like, that's a good idea, but they didn't do anything. So that's a tough one. It took a jury just 50 minutes to condemn Burke to death. Lord Justice Clerk David Boyle, when sentencing Burke, said, quote, Your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized, and I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved, in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. Burke would go on to serve the very same purpose as all of his victims. And while it would have been better to see both men condemned for their crimes, there is some pretty poetic justice being served up here. Yeah, for sure. Sentence to death and dissection. (laughs) I love that ending. (laughs) I know, it's really good. (laughs) Hare, his wife, and Burke's wife would have to be relocated with the help of the police as wherever they went, they were met with angry mobs. In fact, Hare was kept voluntarily in prison for a little while because it was the only place where he, like, wouldn't get murdered. Right. People were not fans of his. Burke would provide a full confession during his time in prison, awaiting his hanging, which would help to completely exonerate his wife and, as I previously mentioned, Dr. Knox. He only had, like, really nice things to say about Dr. Knox. He did not want him to be condemned at all. So I guess good for him in that regard.
1: Well, that was also part of the deal. Oh, okay. Don't ask... Don't tell, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it maybe he thought if he kept if he didn't say anything condemning Knox, then if his wife was free, she'd have no, she wouldn't have to look over her shoulder or anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Burke was hanged on the morning of January 28th, 1829, in front of a crowd of nearly 25. 25- thousand people. Wow. Nuts. Locals who had like a window or a balcony with the view of the hanging scaffolding would charge onlookers for seats. Wow. Yeah. On February 1st, Burke's corpse was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe. <laughs> yep. Mhm. <laughs> In the anatomy theater of the university's old college, police had to be called when large numbers of students gathered demanding access to the lecture for which a limited number of tickets had been issued a minor riot ensued. Calm was restored only after one of the university's professors told the crowd that they would be allowed to pass through the theater in groups of 50 after the dissection was finished. During the procedure, which lasted for two hours, Monroe dipped his quill pen into Burke's blood and wrote, this is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. (laughs) Yeah. That paper is still around. Yep. Burke's skeleton, his death mask, and a book said to be bound with his tanned skin was given to the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School, and they can be seen as Surgeon's Hall Museum to this day.
1: Which is so funny because that was Knox's museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which at that time he was not the curator of anymore. Nope, but he started it. <laughs> he did. He did.
0: So <laughs> if you guys want to go visit William Burke, you sure can.
1: You sure can.
0: I will... Put up some pictures of his skeleton. And I know it sounds like sick and weird and twisted that they made something out of his tanned skin, but that was actually incredibly common with criminals. Yeah. They use their tanned skin to make like shoes and book covers and wallets and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a future story about a hanging where a guy was made into all kinds of stuff that I'll tell at a campfire. So- <laughs> Great. That'll be fun. <laughs> but yeah, so that is the long and winding tale of Birkin Hare. Do you have anything to add?
1: No, I think you got it all. Uh, My only thought was (laughs) it kind of stinks that Monroe was – I mean, it's cool that Monroe was the one that got to teach that class, but just knowing how boring his lectures are (laughs) – It was just people were trying to get in, but they were probably, like, falling asleep during those lectures.
0: Well, they wouldn't let him in for the lecture. Afterwards, they were like, you can parade through to see his body already dissected.
1: Well, but didn't he still probably had a classroom full of people? Yeah, two hours. He had
0: a a class. And then after that. It's probably the longest two hours of their life. (laughs) I guess if you were one of the 50 in batches, you were probably lucky. You just got to, like, gawk and then walk away. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see the spectacle. I don't want to listen to that boring guy talk. Yeah. Charles Darwin and I need to get a beer (laughs) and then eat a chameleon. It's going to be great. Yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, I wrote down a fun fact about Dr. Knox.
0: Yes. Gimme, gimme. Love a fun fact.
1: And I apologize. I meant to look up how to say this. So Knox is commemorated in the the scientific naming of a species of Mm. African lizard. Merolis Noxie. Oh. Yeah. Did Charles Darwin eat that, you think? Well, no, because the Nox would have found it. Mm.
0: But if they knew each other.
1: If they did. I mean, I guess they would have. They might have known each other because they were, he was a teacher when Charles Darwin was a student. Maybe they ate it. Maybe they did. You never know. They might have. There's also some weird things about Dr. Knox, too. Like, if you look him up, he's he's a really interesting dude. But Mm -hmm. he's actually starting to get some more, like, flack now for some things he has said. Really? He... Found it impossible to find a university post. So this would have been afterwards. Okay. He found it impossible to find a university post. And from then until 1856, he worked on medical journalism, gave public lectures, and wrote several books, including his most ambitious work, The Races of Men, (laughs) in which he argued that each race was suited to its environment and perfect in its own way. So that's where like his ethnology kind of comes in, where he like studied the cultures and how, what is it? They're like historical value to society. I mean,
0: that doesn't sound catastrophically racist, but
1: I see how it could have taken a turn. Yeah. When you read into the book, he gets really detailed and very, um, it gets, it gets pretty, it gets pretty descriptive and he is pretty exact. Like he, there, there is some racism in there, but. Depending on that time. Yeah. It was just what he was finding. I don't, and I think he even wrote a second version of the book to kind of lighten some areas to be like, that's not really what I meant. JK, JK. Yeah, because I think some people of like the Scottish descent got upset with some things he said. And <laughs> well, again, uh, it doesn't sound
0: catastrophically racist, but I I really see how it could have gone in that direction.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, if you if you read the book, it it definitely does. That's fine. Just for some things that he gave value to. I mean, he's a very smart man, so a lot of people read his works and they believe in his works, and it kind of it kind of caused a more serious line of belief for some studies. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I like that. That's a fun little epilogue. So who should we toast to today?
1: Mm, Daft Jamie. Daft Jamie. I
0: agree. Okay. (laughs) I wholly agree. Yeah. Cheers to Deaf Jamie, who just wanted to entertain kids and live his life. Oh, so uh, I know. And he was so strong. He was deceptively strong, apparently. Because mm-hmm. he's a dancer.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> a dancer with, like, club foot yeah. who still managed to make it happen. He still did it. So cheers to Deaf Jamie. To Deaf Jamie. And if we were unsuspecting young ladies happy to accept an invitation to a party in 1820 Scotland
1: we would be dead we would be dead (laughs) thank you for listening to the we would be dead podcast hit subscribe now to never miss an episode rate and review our show on iTunes Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at wouldbedeadpod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I feel like that's how we would be dead a lot.
0: 100%. (laughs) We would be dead a lot if someone was like, hey, guys, come have drinks and fun. We'd be like, yay,
1: dead. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to go to keep Holly safe. (laughs) Right. <laughs> but then I'd be the one passed out on the table. <laughs> Guys, I gotta go. Leslie is passed the fuck out.